0: Good late afternoon, everyone. That still feels funny, doesn't it? It's a good crowd here today. This is even better than last week, so thank you for being here. We're settling in. Our kids are settling in. Somebody told me that the uh, let see, my kids are 12 and 18, so I may have forgotten this—but the 5 to 6.30 hour is like the witching hour for small children, um, but it seems like our teachers are getting that under control and our kids are getting settled in, so— Thank you for bearing with all this process that we're in. Is it is it me or is it roaring? Is it roaring? Can y'all hear? It's like in a. It's in a. Is it is it? Yep. Yeah. Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. All right, let's let's just try, let's try, and maybe they'll get this dialed in. Where to begin? Up. Oh. Do I need to, you want me to get uh, one of those mics and just lean it up? You want to try it? Wait a minute. Now all of a sudden that sounds good. Does that sound better? All right. All right. Good. At the heart of Christianity is the teaching of life's, I don't know how better to say this, life's three loves. The love of God, the love of self, and the love of others. A lot of us grew up with great emphasis on the love of God and the love of others, not so much on love of self, right? Uh, We were even enjoined and taught that we weren't supposed to love ourselves to some degree, that somehow that was sordid and misguided. Um, But Jesus taught the three loves. As a good Jew, Jesus taught from the Torah these three loves by saying, when a man asked him, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom? Jesus said, "Uh, really, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So that really is three loves. It's not just love God, love your neighbor, but implied between the two injunctions is as you love yourself. So love of self by Jesus was almost assumed. Now, I I, I never want to contradict Jesus, and I don't intend to, but the assumption of love of self uh, probably at times is presumptuous because there is the reality that we can love ourselves poorly and if we love ourselves poorly and we love others as we love ourselves then we end up loving them poorly which probably is true we probably in the grand scheme of things not trying to wordsmith with Jesus but we probably do love others as we love ourselves don't we and if we love ourselves poorly we end up loving others poorly But the question I think would beg, and if somebody would have asked the question of Jesus, um, Lord, how do we love our neighbor? Jesus would have simply said, well, the way you love your neighbor is the way you love yourself. And then the question, of course, begs, how do we love ourselves? To which I think Jesus would have responded, well, you love yourself the way God has loved you. As Henry Nouwen says, you agree with the sacred voice that calls you beloved but the question for many of us begs how then does god love us and what does divine love mean what is unconditional love and jesus efforted his entire life and ministry to teach us about the love of god he was talking to the pharisees one day and to try to help them understand their mistreatment of people religiously Jesus asked them those three simple questions. If your child asks you for an egg, would you give them a scorpion? If your child asks you for a piece of bread, would you give them a stone? If they ask you for a piece of fish, would you give them a serpent? And this was just one effort, and it's an imperfect effort, an incomplete effort at least. Jesus said, certainly if your child asks you for these things, you would do good to them. So even there was the assumption that there is a good parent. Many people have heard that teaching by Jesus and said, I did ask for egg, fish, and bread, and I did get scorpion, serpent, and stone from my parent. But Jesus said, assuming that you're good parents, he said, how much more does your heavenly Father love you? Jesus spent his life trying to help people understand just what the love of God meant, and Jesus spent his life trying to get people to appropriate that love for themselves, And then Jesus understood if we could ever appropriate that love for ourselves, then it would be amazing how that would appropriate to our neighbors. This injunction of Jesus to love God and self and others really came from the Torah. In the Torah, there was all kinds of teachings about loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And again and again, uh, teachings about how to love our neighbor, even the alien. There wasn't strong teaching in the early Torah on how to love our enemy, but alienly comes close to that. Those that were outside the camp, those that were not a part of us. Internally, the Hebrew people were taught when they reaped in their fields that they literally in the harvest, I love this phrase, were supposed to leave handfuls on purpose. Their gleanings of their crops were never supposed to be complete or exhaustive. They were always supposed to leave something, not just handfuls of harvest on purpose, but they were supposed to leave the corners of their fields. And and the corners of the fields and these handfuls they left in the midst of the field were for people who were less privileged, people who did not have property ownership, people who could not provide for their families through the ownership of property and crops and harvest. There was always teachings about how to open our homes with hospitality to those who are not a part of us, who are not of things that we would consider, you know, race and class and nationality. But these teachings by Jesus and Torah were not specific to us. The Baha'i faith says, lay not on any soul a load that you would not wish to be laid upon you. Desire not for anyone the things you would not desire for yourself. Buddhism. Treat others in the way that you yourself would want to be treated. Treat not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Jesus. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. Confucius. One word which sums up the basis of all good conduct. Loving kindness. Do not do to others what you do not want done to yourself. Hinduism. This is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. Islam. Not one of you truly believes until you wish for others what you wish for yourself. Jainism. One should treat all creatures in the world as one would like to be treated. Judaism. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. All the rest is commentary. I love that. That's from the Rabbi Hillel, a predecessor of Jesus. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. All the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Native American spirituality. We are as much alive as we keep others and the earth alive. Not just homo sapien, homo sapien centric thought, but all of creation. Sikhism. I'm a stranger, and no one is a stranger to me. Indeed. I am a friend to all. Taoism. Regard your neighbor's gain as your own gain, and your neighbor's loss as your own loss. Unitarianism, which is not unity. Unitarianism, we affirm and promote respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Boy, that sounds Unitarian, doesn't it? We affirm and promote respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Zoroastrianism. Do not do unto others whatever is injurious to yourself. The upgrade on this in recent times has been what's called the Platinum Rule. All of that somehow um, has been called the Golden Rule. The Platinum Rule says do not simply do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but do unto others as they would have you do unto them. I like that. Think about it. Don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself is an assumption that the way you want to be treated is the way everybody wants to be treated. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Again, the assumption is that the way you like things, your love language is everybody's love language. The Platinum Rule steps this up and says, don't simply do to others what you want. Don't give them from your love language, but do unto others as they would Thank you. He is forever caught in calculations. Do you remember that lovely statement in 1 Corinthians 13? Love keeps no record. Love, in love there is no tally sheet. Taoism, the sage has no fixed or personal ideas. They regard the people's ideas as their own. I treat those who are bad with goodness, thus goodness is attained. I am honest with those who are honest, and I am honest with those who are dishonest, thus honesty is attained. Islam. It may be that God will ordain love between you and those whom you hold as enemies, for God has power over all things, and God is all-forgiving, most merciful. Do as God does. Judaism from the Talmud, aid an enemy before you aid a friend, in this you will subdue hatred. Taoism, do good to him who has done you an injury. Christianity, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christianity, scarcely would a person die for a good person but God has commended God's love to us in that Christ died while we were yet enemies. 1 John three sixteen Christianity. Hereby perceive we the love of God because God laid down God's life for us. Titus 2, while we were yet enemies, the grace of God appeared to us in Christ. Buddhism, conquer, anger by love, conquer stinginess by giving, conquer lies by truth, Jainism. Subvert anger by forgiveness, subdue pride by modesty, overcome hypocrisy with simplicity, overcome greed by contentment, Islam. Repel the evil deed with one which is better. Then lo, he between whom and you there was much enmity shall become as though he were a dear friend. Hinduism. A noble soul will ever exercise compassion even toward those who enjoy injuring others or those of cruel deeds for who among us is truly without fault. Love of neighbor and love of enemy. Charlottesville has not created this dilemma for us, but Charlottesville Charlottesville, Virginia has once more brought back to the fore a dilemma that is ever with us. In our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our states, in our nations, and in our world, and as the great sages has taught us, from whence come wars, do they not first come from your own heart? These things that exist outside of us, it was Solzhenitsyn who said, these lines of demarcation, these demilitarized zones, these 38 parallels, these Normandies, these Auschwitz, do these boundaries and fault lines not run simply down the middle of our own heart first? Two things as we think about Charlottesville, as we think about our world and our place in it. First thing that I would like to say about love of neighbor and love of enemy is a reminder for those of us that dig our roots down into the Christian tradition. At the heart of the Christian faith is the idea of incarnation, and the idea of incarnation is the idea of God the invisible materialized, specifically incarnare, carnivorous, in flesh. Stan Jr., who is a lifeguard uh, at a pool in Nolensville, sent me a message this afternoon, and said that he had his first lifeguard rescue. Uh, He saved a drowning one this afternoon. And of course, as father, I sent back Steve, and I said, wow, what a rush, to which he responded immediately uh, with a picture of his two hands, and in his lap, a little white albino rat. that was lying sideways in his hands, little feet and long tail and Stan said he was walking by the kiddie pool and um, as he was walking by, I mean there's going to be no presidential medal of freedom given here, but as he walked by he said he saw this little guy, Jeff, he had been in the pool a long time, desperately paddling, trying to keep himself afloat. Who knows how long you've been in the kiddie pool and Stan said he happened to see him just as he went down. And he lifted him out, and for 10 minutes, this little creature of God set in Stan's hands while he resuscitated himself, breathed heavy, got the water out, and after 10 minutes of that, simply looked up, and with a thank you of not biting, he scrambled out of Stan's hand and went off into the woods. And I remembered, I remember that Christianity is not in homo sapien or inhuman, but Christianity is in flesh. Christians, uh, humans with our species centric thought have thought we are the only flesh. For those of us uh, who have dogs and cats and critters, we know that the image of God extends beyond just homo sapiens. It extends to all life, and not only to all life, but it extends even to the inanimate objects of this. Boy, you just missed a good story, Stan Junior. Yeah, there he is, ladies and gentlemen. The the rat saver. I honestly texted back to him after I saw the little guy, and I texted back, and I meant it. I texted back, love, exclamation point. Yeah, (laughs) in flesh, Parker Palmer, and I often quote him, said, It's amazing that a religion like ours that is so vested in the idea of incarnation, of God materialized, it is amazing that a religion like ours so often gets lost in disembodied concepts and abstractions. Theories and doctrines when it's all about that which is material remember I don't know where Van is but Van we were talking one day I, I've always thought it was beautiful that the first Adam of creation the first human was called uh, the image of God and, and then the second Adam Jesus was also called the image of God and as beautiful as that is I think these are only the first teachings of God to us that lay a foundation for something much deeper because I remember Van pushed back and said, that's a, that's a lovely idea that that you and me and that little drowning rat, literally, that these things are images of God, but they are more than the image of God. I mean, images are precious, aren't they? But for those of us who have lost loved ones, how much does a picture suffice? We are not capable of hugging that which we see in the mirror. Images indicate, but images do not capture the beauty of what we really are facing with one another. We're not only the image of God, we are the substance of God. We're not just looking at pictures and 2D reflections of the 3D, but we are looking at 3D reflections of the 4D, and reflections that if we really delve into them actually have that added dimension themselves, divine of the divine. The idea that we see traced in the Judeo-Christian text is a really beautiful one. You see God creating out of the substance of what existed, which was God. And and out of the substance of God, God created with the material of God all things. And there was this irrepressible conscience, that this consciousness that rose up in a human being. And that human being, like no other being, looked toward the heavens and looked inward with capacity for introspection. And the Bible says that God walked with that human a while until finally God said, this is not good. And it's really striking that God would have this incredible union with the human being and that there would be this isolated experience, this isolated relationship of God and this human walking in the cool of the day and yet God somehow taste insufficiency there and this was before anybody ate a fruit anybody got talked into anything by a serpent this was when the lion and the lamb lay in repose together and in that climate-controlled place of peace Adam the human the original human reveled in the presence of God and God said it's not good somewhere there was more and instead of elevating the conscious the consciousness of the human vertically into the heavens or instead of god coming vertically down in dissension to the human maybe that's exactly what god did as god caused the deep sleep to come over the human and out of the substance of the human out of the dna out of the rib out of that which was God either drew out and reformed another human, or God literally, as many theologians, many Jewish theologians believe, God bifurcated that which was both male and female, that complete human bifurcated into two. And when these two humans came out from underneath that divine anesthetic and looked at one another, God said, no, that is very good. And God recedes and yet presses. Recedes into the invisibility that was necessarily this sum of all things, this vast God that Isaiah said, as high as the heavens are above the earth, God is above us. And there is something infinitely, impossibly distant about that. And yet, ironically, paradoxically, in the same way, there is something that is so irrepressibly and indomitably close. As these two humans look at one another, long for one another, begin to connect, God resolves the ungoodness by giving us one another so right in the beginning of our story there is this there's almost this demand of the text that we realize what god really wants is not a bunch of humans standing on tiptoes worshiping toward the invisible what god really wants and god calls very good is that is that we we look to one another and we find the fullness of the divine in this in us and and the Jewish people work and they develop that idea, and then out of the Jewish family comes this incredible Rabbi Jesus, who erupts onto the scene, and, and Christianity has been wrestling with this one for two thousand years. But I don't mind a bit that Jesus seemed to erupt on the scene and say, "I am God." I'm God. Now, he he didn't say it. Um, He didn't say it straight on, but as Emily Dickinson said, he said it slant, and then those after him began to foment the idea. But it it really doesn't bother me that Jesus looked at us and said, I am the substance of God. And, And so I find myself very Christian orthodox in the fact that Jesus to me was God, but I found myself prone to what some call heresy, when I believe not only was Jesus making a statement about God, I think Jesus was making a statement about all of us. And I don't think we immediately teased that out. I don't think we were wrapping our mind fully, Steve. He wasn't just saying, this is who God is. He, say, he was saying, this is who you are. But what a profound idea for the invisible God to become visible. That's a nice idea. That's something all of us want. We want to walk with him and talk with him and and be with her. We want somehow to have this intimate relationship with the divine. And so when Jesus comes in that form we immediately attach to him and we don't want to let him go and yet he goes away and he even says I need to go away because you don't need to do it this way. You don't need to localize the invisible God into this one being because you'll build statues and worship systems and you'll get lost and you will lose one another, and it will all be vertical, and religion will become hollow and meaningless and impractical. And so he walks with us a while and then says, I've got to go away, but if I go away, I'm going to send you this thing called the Holy Ghost. And they say, we don't want the Holy Spirit, we want you, and Jesus goes away anyway. And then there's this 40-day weaning period, for he resurrects in the story and he immediately comes back and people like Mary Magdalene are like, great, you're back. And she hugs him and she says, you got away from me once, but this is the way I like God. I like a God that can be touched and, and, and held and felt and seen. And Jesus lives with them 40 days and immediately begins to uncurl their fingers just as Mary's fingers wrapped around him. And he says to her, let me go. Never to the end of dismay or degradation, but he says, let me go, because clinging to the divine in one being, clinging to the divine in one manifestation, clinging to the divine in one religion, clinging to the divine in one concept, your hands are not full enough. So who would ever tell someone to let go of Jesus? Oh, I don't know. Jesus? And then after 40 days, he takes them out to the mountain, and they did exactly what we have the inclination to do. They subvert the message of incarnation. They subvert the message of God as substance of all things. But when they get to that mountain where he told them to be, they begin to worship him. And you know what he did? He started to leave them. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, as he left them, he blessed them. I I don't think we've dealt very well with that, but this isn't simply him geographically departing and giving them uh, an unattached blessing. I think the scripture is literally saying, in his leaving them, he was blessing them. All great spiritual leaders take you to the border And in their greatness at that border, you want to worship them, ensconce them, enthrone them. But all great spiritual leaders refuse that. You remember when they tried to make him king? Jesus said, no, thank you. I'll be not an earthly one nor a heavenly one for your sake. He left them and he blessed them. And they went expecting him to return because we want that god that we can sink our teeth into but instead of returning in flesh he returned in flesh instead of returning in the flesh of one man the holy spirit dropped from the heavens that were inside of them jesus said down into their consciousness and now within years great theologians like paul looked at us and said you know who you are You know who I am? We are the body of Christ. We are the body of God. And so this this move in the Judeo-Christian text is from invisible God into flesh, and then we have trouble recognizing the flesh of God, the material of God, the substance of God in one another. And so God comes back in flesh in a second Adam and we say, That's it, and we fixate on that, and then that second Adam says, You're missing the point, leaves and says, But I'm gonna give you something better. It's the spirit in you that reminds you that now God is visible in all of us. And God was always visible in all of us, but we did not see. God is visible in the substance of God, which is us. And so, somehow, we are left with the intolerable, and yet, irrepressible idea that the one who drove the car and the one whose life was taken by the car are inextricably linked. As enemies and yet, and yet as one another, the supremacist on one side and the beaten down on the other. Irrepressibly linked by hate, no, every great spiritual leader says, by substance, by a kinship that everything inside of us would like to deny. We are one. And Jesus said it is this recognition of our oneness, oneness with God and oneness with one another And if we are, indeed, one, then the question comes, how do we treat one another? How do we treat one another? We treat one another as we would treat ourselves, because the other is ourself. And we are the other. And we have a hard time linking ourselves to those we count as enemies loving them from a distance, loving them theoretically and abstractly, but that the difficult wisdom required to love them as we love ourselves is to understand that they are ourself. And, and, And while we wrestle with that issue, it's exactly what Jesus said that he's going to remind us of one day when we stand in that theoretical place of judgment. And Jesus says, I've wanted to tell you this and if there's one thing that I if there's one thing that I would tell you that would explain life, that would explain why you're here, Jesus said this is it. And knowing that on the on the opposite sides of statues and Charlottesville's and Finland stabbings and Barcelona Travesties, knowing that on either side of that we have a hard time seeing the oneness of us all. Jesus stepped in as surrogate to that, and Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in and then he presses in and said i was in prison and you visited me and us not understand us liking images to worship as opposed to substance to live because images to worship are easier than the substance to live this out but those of us who misunderstood who had built a religion out of images and icons and even idols Jesus said, it's as simple as this. I was every hurting person. If you want to know what the Christ is, the Christ is every, every person, everything, every little rat pulled out of a pool. Everywhere there is suffering and everywhere there is joy. This is the substance of God, which is the Christ. And to that, we curiously say, Lord, when did we see you? hungry. When did we ever see you thirsty? And Jesus explains the unity of us all by saying, as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you were doing it unto me. And then Jesus said, as much, and this, this may even be the more troublesome for me, as much as you didn't do it unto the least of these, you missed an opportunity to do it to me. And, and who are you, Jesus? Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you've seen me, you've seen the eternal parent, the creator. So when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If A equals B and B equals C, Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when you've seen a hurting person, Steve, I ran into Beetlejuice down, getting off 12th the other day. I thought, man, what a deal. He didn't want to look at me. And when you've seen Beetlejuice, one of our guys that Steve's worked with through the years, Jesus said, when you've seen him, you've seen me. And right now we're in a stage of tough love, which is love, but he told me to tell you hi, by the way. <laughs> when you've seen, if you can wrap your head around when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God, then you've got to wrap your head around when you've seen another person, you've seen Jesus. So you've got to wrap your head around when you've seen another person, you've seen God. And so the question then becomes, how do we treat these gods among us? Matthew 6, Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And this isn't just the the ancient idea of an earthly um, home and a heavenly home. But, but layers of meaning, stratas of significance and reality. Jesus said, heaven is inside of us. Don't just lay up for yourself the superficial, but lay up for yourself the real. And then 1 Timothy 6, the apostle Paul reflectively qualified and really parsed this out for us when he said, teach those who desire to be rich. And I, I just wanna say, I want to say this, um, I grew up in a denomination that was divided between what I know as the prosperity doctrine and a doctrine called that I would call the poverty doctrine. And the prosperity doctrine took the idea of financial prosperity to such an extreme um, that it become a caricature, you know, just um, mistake, I think but one of our reactions to that, Lee, was we created the poverty doctrine where poverty was holiness, and the poorer you were, the closer you were to God. That's not what the wise teachers teach, and it's not what Paul taught when he said, teach those who desire to be rich that they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. He's talking about that inordinate desire. I have lots of Friends who are wealthy that don't have an inordinate desire to be wealthy They just have worked hard and they're wealthy and so many of them are great givers And then I see incredibly poor people standing in long lines for you know lottery tickets who are incredibly stingy Uh, Financial poverty does not mean wealth of soul and financial prosperity does not mean a, a blight of soul Paul just said teach those who are rich three things teach those who are rich don't be haughty, don't ever look at your abundance and allow it to cause you to look at another human being who lacks that abundant abundance condescendingly. Perhaps there is no greater sin than for one substance of God to look at another substance of God despairingly because of their lack. So teach the rich, do not be haughty, teach them, do not trust in uncertain riches. Listen to this, he said, teach them, do not trust in uncertain riches because God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Did you hear what he just said? He said, don't trust in the riches because God gave them to you for you to enjoy. And Buck, the quickest way to not enjoy it is to start trusting it, to try to make it something that it's not. Enjoy the heck out of it, but don't trust it. It could be here today and it could be gone tomorrow. There's a a caprice to it. So don't trust in the uncertain riches. And then listen to this and teach them to be willing to share. Mm. Teach them to be willing to share. And here comes the line, the quote from Jesus. Teach them to be willing to share, laying up for themselves treasures in heaven. Teach them to share. Because to hoard and to silo is to lay up for yourself treasures in the superficial domain. But if you share, you recognize your union, because as Tichnat Han said, when we share with the other, we finally realize we are not sharing at all, but we are giving into our own hand, for their hand is ours. Kishnad Han is also the one, the great Buddhist activist, who said when Jesus said to love your enemy, what Jesus was truly saying was, if you love your enemy, you will alleviate your enemy because when you love them, they are no longer your enemy. You transform them. Teach them to be willing to share. And then I think finally of 2 Corinthians 8 as I think about Charlottesville and I think about social action and the relief of suffering and Timothy's gift and Dasana School and uh, Bob and Evelyn Vail's, Jocelyn Taylor's parents' feeding program in the summer and all of these things that we do, uh, Steve, open table and room at the inn and on and on. Paul said to the church in Corinth, he said, I want to tell you about the church up the road from you in Thessalonia, in Philippi. He said, I've been taking up an offering for our Jewish brothers and sisters over in Judea because they're starving. There's an embargo there and they are hurting desperately. And as I'm going through these churches of Asia Minor, I'm receiving an offering, and he said, I want to tell you about the church in Thessalonica and Philippi. He said, they gave until I literally had to ask them to quit giving. He said, they gave the way Jesus did, who was rich and for our sake, he became poor. And Paul said, I literally backed them off of that model because the goal is not to become poor on behalf of the poor. He said, I told them to stop giving so much lest they become poor and those they give to become rich. Listen to what Paul said. He said, I just wanted there to be an equality. And capitalists everywhere and Americans like us are so skittish about socialism and communism and Marxism that when we hear things like equality and distribution, we think of forced distribution. And that's not what Paul said at all. Paul said to the church in the next chapter, he said, so let everyone give as they purpose in their heart, not begrudgingly or out of necessity, because the thing God really loves is when people give cheerfully. He, he said, maybe God likes it when we give, but God loves it when we give cheerfully, because there is the capacity to give without loving, but there is no capacity to love without giving, and so God knows when the giving is there and it's cheerful, that there really is a transformed heart, and Paul said, all I'm wanting for any of us and all of us is that there be inequality. So let everyone give us the purpose in their heart for God loves a cheerful giver. And God doesn't want you poor so that the poor might be rich. God just simply wants equanimity. So at Grace Point, we are sounding gongs and clanging cymbals if we only love in word alone. And if our life is a series of Facebook posts and simple, clean marches, if our life is just a group of people who gather on the weekend to sing songs and abstract and theorize about loving, then Paul said, this is not love at all. We as a congregation, as we move into this next chapter of our life, we probably, as much as we want to sing and be together and teach our children, we must, as we have never before, we must find ways to move into the conundrums of Charlottesville and the dilemmas of the homeless and the struggles of the marginalized and the underserved. We, we have to figure out, and this church is committed to figuring out how we can find, not a thousand things to do, but brothers and sisters, very practically, a few things to do well, where we make a dent in the suffering of this world, and we learn to elevate human flourishing. Where we elevate human flourishing by teaching people their belovedness and their worth. Where we diminish unnecessary and unjust suffering, because surely, there is necessary suffering, and we do not want to intrude on another person's journey, but where there is unnecessary and unjust suffering, we alleviate and we elevate consciousness. And we do this through social justice, and we do this through acts of love. I'm really thrilled in uh, September, Steve and Roy and Justin are going to take a Sunday in late September, and they're going to talk about the plight of those who are enduring homelessness among us. And these are men who have poured their life into those people. About about once a month, I get a text from Justin, I got one the other night and said, I just spent the night with a group of homeless men and I just stayed up for a long time with a 72-year-old guy on his birthday and I don't know what to say. Um, You know, I think about Jeanette and Bob Vale, Jocelyn Taylor's mom and dad. She was an ESL teacher at Tusculum Elementary, and she was retiring after 35 years serving this, this city, teaching our children ESL, English as a Second Language, and as she was leaving her last year into retirement, and her and Bob were going to have a nice retirement, she looked at a little group of kids, and she realized They all came from one apartment building down on the corner of Nolensville and Old Hickory Boulevard. About 1,200 people live, and about 95% of them are refugees. A great percentage of them came from refugee camps. They settle there, and a vast majority of these children do not eat lunch. School is their place to eat, and she realized it, and she couldn't stand it and a retiring school teacher, instead of getting an RV, she and Bob have dedicated themselves, and for the last six years, they don't even have a name for it, it's just called love, they go to this place five days a week, and every day of the week through the summer, they hand out 100 to 130 substantial nutritional lunches in the kids' homes with rice and beans, so their parents from at least 30 different nations have something to cook that night, And I asked her a few weeks ago how they did it and how they put it all together, and she looked at me and she said, I don't know. And I said, no, really, how did you do it? And she said, really, I don't know. And there she is, there they are. Timothy's gift, this week, I need you. Let me just give you a practical example of uh, something we can do this week together and I'll close um there is no there is no um, hiding nor do we want to hide the fact that this church has made a huge dent and a huge mark in terms of advocacy and equality and belovedness and human dignity for LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters um, People say that's all we talk about that's all we are and um, I don't even know what to say to that um, except that, I'm grateful for this church, and I'm grateful for a place that um, 11 and 12 and 13-year-old LGBT kids will not be told that they are less than, and they will not grow up through their teenage years lying in bed every night wanting to take their life. So I, I love this church, and I love what we have done on this issue and I love the fact that our LGBTQ plus in this congregation don't want to be known just for that and they've been marginalized so long that they love being here and they don't want it just to be a gay church and I get all of that, but I also get the fact that we have a mantle here and we cannot shirk it now that we're home. We still have brothers and sisters in slavery, and this is a huge issue, and we can never, ever, ever diminish that. We are on the forefront of something important, and we've got to stick with it. With that said, two and a half years ago, when we made the initial move, a much larger congregation made that initial move, When that congregation diminished, began to diminish, and my heart began to break, and I began to feel, not like a martyr, but like a failure, because I thought I had done it wrong. I was driving across Moore's Lane, just came across 65, Bank of America on the right, McDonald's on the left, and I got a phone call, and for some reason, I picked it up, and I answered, and I said, hello. Didn't know the number, and I never did that, but I answered, hello and a voice on the other end said, this is, Stan, this is Mitchell Gold, and I didn't know who Mitchell Gold was, but the way he said this is Mitchell Gold, I thought he knew he was someone, and so I put him on speakerphone, and I began to look up who Mitchell Gold was, and I found that Mitchell Gold was the co-founder of Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams Home Furnishings, and that he owned a company out of North Carolina that did about $300 million of business every year, and he was a big, he was friends with lots of people, and he was a bigwig, and yet he didn't sound like one, he honestly didn't. He said, I just wanted to call. He teared up and said, I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family, and I spent every year, every month, every week, every day, and every night of my childhood trying to find the courage to end my life because I knew I was an abomination, and I knew I didn't deserve to exist, And Jason, he said, I couldn't be other than I was, so I just wanted to die. And he said, I just wanted to thank you for doing what you're doing. And for the next two years, Mitchell Gold called me at least once every couple of weeks, just to say thank you and I hope you're doing okay. And I hope your church is doing okay. And then after a couple of years, Mitchell Gold told me, he said, hey, I have a nonprofit advocacy group um, that works on behalf of LGBTQ children, and it's called Faith in America. It's a double entendre: faith, like religion, in America, and having faith in America, confidence in America. He said, "I have this organization, and I'd love for you to help us and work with us." And I've I've started working for Faith in America just as a side, because it was the one group between PFLAG and GLAD and and. Uh, all the organizations, um, Pride, they're all so great, but this was the one that struck my heart, because Faith in America, and I know I gotta let you go, but Faith in America had one message, and the message is this. We have got to get the LGBTQ off of the sin list of of the religions of the world, because no matter how much secular culture tries to act like religion is not impacting the world. You can bury your head in the sand all day long, but millions and billions of people religiously championing the idea that God sees a group of people as less than or an abomination, that message and that force is having a huge impact on the world. And Mitchell Gold, who now is a secular Jew, who has spiritual sentiments but is not religious at all, He has it as his goal to get the LGBTQ off of the sin list. One reason, he said, because it is killing children. He's partnered with groups like the Trevor Project, and I just want you to hear these statistics. And you may have heard me on social media saying these things, but I sat with the people from the Trevor Project who are an incredible group of 65 people, 65 employees who do nothing except try to cure teen suicide and one of the largest factions of their work are LGBTQ plus kids. Homeless kids in Nashville, 40% of them are LGBTQ plus. The Trevor Project in a study done with USC and another has found, listen, that LGBTQ plus children attempt suicide four times more often than heterosexual, cisgendered kids. Straight across the board, four times more often. Now listen to this. Their attempts are four to six times as effective. So when they do it, Linda, they really do it. Their only cry for help is to stop breathing because they've been told that's what God thinks of them. They're four to six times more likely. Now here's where we come in and here's where we've gotta get it off the sin list. Children, LGBTQ plus children raised in a rejecting home and the most dominant force of rejection with LGBTQ kids is religious rejection. Children, LGBTQ kids raised in a religiously rejecting home are 8.4 times as likely to attempt suicide as other lgbtq plus kids not heterosexual kids they're 8.4 times more likely because of religious rejection being to- not even kicked out of the house just told by their parents and the authority figures in their church you are wrong you're not doing something wrong you are wrong that means if they're 8.4 times more likely than another LGBTQ kids, they are somewhere between 25. The kids raised the way we were raised, who are LGBTQ plus, are 25 to 30 times more likely to attempt suicide than cisgendered heterosexual kids. And Faith in America and Mitchell Gold, myself and others are simply saying to Catholics and Baptists and Mormons and Muslims and Orthodox Jews, you no longer have the right to stand behind the argument of moral conviction and biblical interpretation when we have direct evidence that your teaching is not causing 35-year-old people living a lifestyle that you think is a lifestyle, it's causing 11-year-old children Jason to have a 25 to 30 time more likely what if you had two children in your home and one of them in a bedroom had a 30 times greater likelihood than another one in another bedroom to acquire a fatal terminal illness because of the kind of paint on the wall what would you do we got to get this off the sin list because it's killing kids And here's your practical opportunity this week. I need this church desperately, because this week the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Leadership Institution Committee, they are having their annual conference at Opryland Hotel this week. The focus of their ethics this year, of their conference on ethics this year is parenting. And we found out that on Friday morning from 8.30 to 9.15, they have a session on teaching their pastors, Sunday school teachers, and leaders what to do, and parents what to do, if your child tries to come out to you as gay. And it's going to be the same party line that has been devastating people for years. And I'm not somebody who goes and chants and fights hate with hate and gets ugly and marches and throws things but Mitchell has asked me to lead a coalition of people here in Nashville, people of sensibilities like ours, to meet 7.45 this Friday morning at the north end of Opryland Mall, or uh, Opry Mills Mall, to meet, gather together, got a lot of other churches, a lot of other people, and we are going to quietly walk over to Opryland Hotel, and we're going to go into the convention center, and we are gonna stand quietly And they will very quickly ask us to leave, but we are going to try to get attention to simply say, you have got to quit doing harm to these children. And you have got to think again about this message. We do not have the right to keep doing something that is putting our children – LGBTQ kids raised in a rejecting home, religiously rejecting home, are 70 times as likely to be sex trafficked and homeless, and 25 to 30 times more likely to commit suicide. So Kathy Gilliland, where are you? I want you to come up here and I want us whoever i know you guys have jobs if you can go into your job late if, if you can do it at all friday morning i just need about an hour and a half we'll be done by 8 30 to 9. but i want us to show up and if anything we're not going to chant we might sing amazing grace because we want them to know it's our hymnal too and he's our jesus too and we believe there is a better way to teach our children about their sexuality and identity can you say amen So, Kathy, forgive me, we're not always going to stay this long, but I had to get this out. This is a response to Charlottesville. This is an opportunity. Let's conquer hate with love this week. Would you go with me? Would you help me show up at Opera Land this week to talk to our Southern Baptist brothers and sisters? We're not just wanting to protest. We have been begging and imploring their leaders to just sit down with us. Just sit down with us so we can have this talk, please. You say, you're never going to change their mind. Yes, we are. This tide is turning, and we can't give up until the work is done. Can you say amen? All right. God bless you. You're dismissed. If you want to find out more, I'd love to have sign up. Uh, I don't know if we've got the capacity to do that. Did you bring any paper? We can can make it happen right here. All right. Those of you who can do it, I know some of you got to get kids. We'll send out Facebook messages this week. Um, But those that would sign up, please come and sign up, and we'll give you more details. God bless you. Go.